kids always, I hope you have a great time in the back. Uh, If you're remaining in the room, I'd encourage you to turn to uh, James chapter 5. James chapter 5, we're going to be reading verses 13 to 20 uh, at the end of this letter. Um, We just read about this um, or or proclaimed this in our affirmation of faith about uh, what we believe about Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, first and the last, the beginning um, and the end. But when you think about it, um, when Jesus Christ, during the incarnation, when he was here on this earth, um, he made some pretty bold claims. Uh, Of course, he uh, claimed to be God, claimed to be fully human, Um, and fully divine at the same time. Uh, He declared that he and the Father were one. Uh, He declared that there was no way to access or to get to the Father except through him and through a relationship with him. And so as you can imagine, some of these claims were probably very hard for people to believe, those that first heard. It certainly was for James, uh, Jesus' half-brother and the author of this book that we've been looking at this fall. Um, He initially didn't believe in the claims of Jesus, which is understandable. Uh, You and I would struggle if one of our siblings all of a sudden claimed to be divine. Uh, But of course we know that James later believed in Jesus Christ and his, his claims after he witnessed the miracle of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. After that, he recognized how true Jesus' claims were and his life was changed as a result of it. That really was the purpose of the miracle of the resurrection. It was really the purpose of all of Jesus' miracles in general, and he performed many of them. Uh, They were uh, authenticating signs, is what people have said. They backed up Jesus' claim uh, to be God in the flesh. They they proved that Jesus was telling the truth. But the question we've been presented with uh, throughout this book is, what about us? What about you and I? How do we prove that we are followers of Jesus Christ? We don't perform miracles, so how do we prove our faith in Jesus? How do we authenticate our claim to be Jesus followers, uh, to be Christians. James says that it's through our works. It's, it's through our deeds done in righteousness. It's through our lives that have been changed by the gospel. That's how we prove our faith. These deeds aren't the cause of our faith, as we've said each week. That's by uh, God's grace and by God's grace alone. But these good deeds, these righteous deeds, are the effect of God's grace in someone's life. In fact, James was so bold to say that uh, our faith is dead if it's not proven by a life that's been changed, by life that is evidenced by the works of God's kingdom. And so the question we've kept coming back to is this. How does your life, the things that you do each day, How does your life prove or evidence your claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ? James has dealt with the topic of suffering and how we think about suffering. He's talked about wealth and and poverty and uh, favoritism. Uh, He's discussed the power of the tongue and how we use it for life rather than to cut others down. Uh, He took this Old Testament concept of time and the brevity of time and helped us to see that faith thinks a certain way about how we spend the the gift of time that we have been given. 
He's dis- discussed our, our desires and our passions. And if you were with us last week, uh, he talked about quarrels and fighting, uh, how faith thinks about arguing and quarrels and fighting. And we saw how that was really important for James. He was the pastor who oversaw a lot of uh, churches, in particular uh, churches that were in the city of Jerusalem. And he wanted to address all sorts of fights and quarrels that tend to come up in these churches and churches in general. And so as we come to our passage this morning, we look at some of these final instructions that James has for his churches and for us as well. In effect, saying you shouldn't be captured by quarrels and fighting. Negatively, let's not be captured by those things. But he positively also wants to outline what should churches, what should Christians, followers of Jesus, be doing? What is the business of the church? And so as we conclude our letter uh, and our look at this letter, we're going to read James chapter 5, really just a few verses, verses 13 to 18. Listen to God's word. If anyone among you, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain. Then he prayed again. And heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. This is God's word. Let's pray. Fathers, thank you so much for uh, just the gift of worship this morning, Lord. Um, Just what a privilege it is to just remind our hearts of the truth of the gospel, um, how wonderful and and merciful and beautiful you are um, as our Savior, how we can come to your altar, how we can access you by the blood of of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who's done everything possible for us to be forgiven and restored to a right relationship with you. Father, these are powerful things that we've refreshed our hearts in this morning, Lord, and, and now we want to refresh our hearts as we, as we meditate on your word. So we pray this morning that we would hear your voice as we think and, and consider and understand and meditate on the beauty of your powerful word So we pray that it affects our hearts, that it changes us, that it molds us more and more into your image, not just as individuals, but as your community of faith, this thing that we call the church. So we pray all this in the name of our Savior, amen. So I think one of the the best illustrations uh, that I've ever heard about the church and what God wants the church to be is uh, an art form that's called a mosaic. And I'm sure you've seen mosaics before. People have been making them for for centuries. Mosaics are essentially a bunch of broken pieces of, whether it's tile or or stone or glass, that are then shaped and molded and bound together into something that is remarkably beautiful. And 
and people have been doing this for a, a really long time, uh, taking something broken, something uh, not necessarily attractive, and making something beautiful out of it. And I've often thought, and a lot of people have made this observation, that the church is a lot like that. It's a bunch of broken people um, who are often very remarkably different from one another. We are different shapes and sizes from one another, different ethnicities and experiences and backgrounds, and yet we are all brought together by God to create something that is beautiful. James had uh, all sorts of different types of people that were in his church in Jerusalem, and we've looked at it over the past couple weeks. Uh, He had a lot of people in his church that were either living in poverty or who were right on the cusp of poverty, uh, struggling to get by, wondering how they were going to pay their next bill. Um, He had also a lot of wealthy landowners that from time to time, uh, these are very wealthy individuals, would show up at church on Sunday and people would fawn all over them and suck up to them because they were wealthy and influential in their society. And so at points, he would have both the oppressor and the oppressed sitting beside one another uh, for worship on a Sunday morning. He also had zealots that were in his congregation. These were folks that wanted to, these were the radicals, the folks that wanted to overthrow the Roman Empire and Roman control by force. And so if you think about his church, this, was, this church was a powder keg ready to explode and could explode at any moment. And yet James, knowing all that, wanted this church to be beautiful. He wanted this church to be a reflection to the world around them of the beauty of Jesus Christ and a relationship with him. And so as we come to our passage this morning, James doesn't just talk about the diversity of background that often exists in a lot of churches, not just his, but he also wants to talk about the diversity of experience that the people in the pews have on a Sunday morning. Some in his congregation were deeply suffering for all sorts of different reasons. Some in his congregation were celebrating. We don't know why, but they were filled with joy and happiness. Some in his congregation were sick and very sick. Some were wandering away from the truth. We read about that in verse 19. And so uh, on any given Sunday, you could have someone in the pews who is crying because of all sorts of grief and pain in their lives, sitting next to somebody who's crying because of all sorts of joy and happiness and celebration that they were feeling. In the pews, you could have people who were newly converted to faith in Jesus Christ and were passionate and excited about their new faith, sitting next to someone who was considering leaving the faith because it was too hard or difficult or they were full with all sorts of doubts. And so all these different people are expressing all these different emotions in the midst of the beauty of this congregation. Last week, I mentioned this thing called the homogenous unit principle, and this was um, uh, codified by a bunch of people that study churches and church growth units and all that sort of stuff, and they discovered that, that most people want to worship in a congregation with people who look just like them, who act just like them, who have the same desires as them. 
And so a lot of churches leaned into that and wanted to uh, cater to different churches and different congregations, and they designed all sorts of services and ministries accordingly because people like to hang out with people that look just like them. But if we do this, if we really lean into that, I think sometimes we can miss the beautiful mosaic that the church was designed to be. When you think about it, you don't really get to pick and choose who God brings into the door on a Sunday, week in and week out. You don't always get to pick who sits next to you in church on Sunday. All these things are arranged by God himself on purpose. The sick and the healthy, the the faithful and the wandering, the sad and the joyful, all worshiping together, bound together by the power of the gospel. What I've often thought is that people should walk into either our church or any church on the Sunday and wonder how on earth do all these people get along? How is that even possible? There's nothing on paper that should bring all these people together and should bind them together other than the power of God working in their midst. You see, the gospel is the glue that keeps the church together. The power, the power of God is the only thing that makes the institution of the church work. The Spirit's power is what makes this a picture of the kingdom of heaven. But again, James is infinitely practical. And so he wants us to see what this looks like in real life. What is this beautiful mosaic of the church? What does it look like in real life? What does it look like practically? And I think the key verse he has here is verse 16 that says this. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. He's saying here that the demonstration of the Spirit's work is a church that prays and a church that confesses. These two things are the principal work of the church, the business of the church. Now clearly his emphasis is uh, really on the first point, that prayer is to be the central business of the church. Are you sad? James says, you should pray. Are you happy? You should pray. Sometimes it's a little harder to pray when we're happy because often our prayers feel more real when we're desperate and sometimes we forget to pray when we're happy and things are going well. But James says, if you're happy, if you're joyful, you should pray. Are you sick? You should pray. In fact, if you're sick, you should call the elders and the church community together and they should surround you in prayer. Are you caught in sin? Well, you should pray. James is like a broken record here, as you can tell. He's repeating himself over and over again. And we often wonder, James, aren't there more important things that the church should be doing? Aren't there more concrete and measurable rubrics for success when it comes to a church community? Shouldn't we be about things like evangelism and, and missions and urban ministry? And he would say, yes, all those things are important, but after we've prayed after we've prayed. Why? Because this is where the power is. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. 
See, a person of faith who's not praying according to selfish ambition, but praying according to the will and the desire of God has tremendous power. You might be thinking, "Eh, yeah, okay, not me, not me. Um, uh, James anticipates that objection because his first century church was probably thinking the same thing. Not me, Uh, there's not power in my prayer. And he says immediately, Elijah, have you heard of him before? He was a man with a nature just like you. Essentially saying he was just like us. And yet, and yet he prayed fervently. And God, through his prayer, shaped the forces of the natural world. See, through the power of prayer comes healing. Through the power of prayer comes forgiveness. Through the power of prayer, the wanderer is reclaimed. And the church has this very power of God at its disposal if only we would pray. And so James is in effect saying, what keeps this motley crew of people together? What makes a group of broken people beautiful? It is the strength for all this comes through the power of prayer. And so let me ask you, what is it that you are facing in your life right now? Is it an instance of joy and celebration? Then you should pray. Is it a moment of anxiety or worry? Then you should pray. Is it some sort of sickness or ailment that you've been suffering through for a while? You should pray. Is it a doubtful or a wandering heart? Are you wondering whether all this really matters? Then you should pray. Are you worried about the, sel- the selfish intent in your prayers, as James talks about? Well, confess it and pray anyway. You just should pray. Is it a really big deal? Is it something that feels a lot bigger than you? Then get others to pray for you as well. Double, triple, quadruple the power of God in your life by getting others to pray for you because you never know what God will do. Just pray and get others and other brothers and sisters to pray with and for you. Prayer ought to be the central business of the church. But James also mentions here confessing your sins to one another. And I will tell you, this definitely makes the church look, if we do this, this definitely makes the church look differently than any other institution that exists in our world. Uh, This summer, uh, my work wanted me and all the other employees uh, to read a book over the summer. And so they created a list of five books and they said, you got to pick one of these books and we want you to read it over the summer. And then when we come back in the fall, we're going to get everybody together uh, according to the books that you've read and we're going to discuss the books. Well, it's October and we finally got around to meeting together as a staff. We met this week to discuss the books that we read over the summer And uh, I will tell you, we walked into this meeting and um, uh, everybody was very quiet. And uh, one person shared, well, I had this thought as I was reading the book. And another person said, well, I had this thought as I was as I was reading the book. But it was it was awkward. It was like pulling teeth to get people to share. And then finally, one brave participant in the meeting said, I have to confess to you all. I I barely read this book over the summer, and what I read was back in June. And the minute she shared that, all the air went out of the room, 
And almost everybody else confessed, guess what? I didn't read the book either, or I barely read the book either. I didn't finish it either. And immediately everybody else in the room relaxed. All the pretense, all the posturing went out of the door. And after that confession, we all had a wonderful discussion about the topic. See, friends, I think sometimes churches get this wrong. Sometimes churches can be the most pretentious places we can go to, right? Everybody got to walk in and we're all posturing uh, like a peacock strutting around. Uh, We want to show off our righteousness. We want to humble brag about our accomplishments and how spiritual we are. But what if we led with confession in the church? What if we led with confession? What if we led with things like, you know what? I really screwed up this week. Uh, Maybe it was gluttony, Uh, maybe it was lust, maybe it was selfishness, maybe we did use our tongue to destroy someone else in our lives and we needed to confess that. I think it's wonderful that we do a confession of sin every week um, and we do it every week if you come here uh, on Sunday. Uh, It's a great reminder of the truth of our souls and the reality of our souls and make God's grace that much more beautiful as we think about um, our own brokenness. But there's even so much more to this when we confess our sins to one another. It has this effect of sort of chasing all pretense out of the door. And what it does is it binds us together. It makes us human beings who are flawed and on this spiritual journey with one another. And if we're willing to confess our sins, often we discover that we're not alone in our flaws and in our sins. Just like that book group, if we confess our sins to one another and somebody else says, oh, you struggle with that too? You too? I I struggle with that as well. Immediately, all pretense goes away. We don't feel alone in our sin because those words, you too, are powerful to make us feel bound together, to make us not feel alone in this walk of faith that we're a part of and to make us feel a part of this beautiful community. Church then no longer has to be about who's got it right and who's got it all together. Church now becomes a place where a bunch of broken people who are open about their sins and missteps are made beautiful by Jesus and the power of the gospel. Here's what I believe. If real and true mutual confession of sin can become a habitual practice of the church, it will, it will set us apart from the world that is around us. Too often I think churches are like um, that character, Michael Scott, in the office where he was being interviewed one day and they said, what are your weaknesses? And he said to them, my weaknesses are that I care too much and I work too hard, which are actually also my strengths, right? I think that's the way we often think about these sorts of things. Instead, what the church should be is it should be the most honest place that we go to week in and week out. This, friends, I think is the power of the church. Therefore, verse 16, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. From the outside looking in, there is no way this institution should survive, let alone thrive, And yet we have the very power of God working through us as we confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. 
We can be all sorts of things, but confession and prayer needs to be the central business of the community of faith. And so as we conclude our look at James, uh, I don't know about you, but this walk through the book of James has been uh, a powerful one. At points, it's been very convicting. Uh, Socrates famously said, the unexamined life is not worth living. The unexamined life is not worth living. But in the frenetic pace of our world, it is very easy for us all to never stop and really, truly evaluate our lives. We can just go through life going from one thing to another, really never paying attention to the whys and the whats of what's going on. But James wants us to sit down. He wants us to slow down. He wants us to evaluate. Does my life evidence the gospel? Where is the fruit of the gospel in my life? Where does it bear out? How does the death and resurrection of Jesus bear out in my real and everyday life? How has Jesus changed the way I view suffering and wealth and my time? How has Jesus changed my speech and my desires and my passions? What in my life authentically authenticates my claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, if you've had to sort of gulp in your own personal evaluation over the past couple weeks, you're not alone. I've felt that as I've studied James all throughout, you're just like me, which is why the steadfast love and the faithfulness of God is so glorious. Because no matter how much we poorly reflect the gospel day in and day out, his love for us never wanes and never diminishes because he is faithful to us even as imperfectly as we are faithful to him. Even as we imperfectly demonstrate the gospel to our world, he remains faithful and steadfast in his love for us. And I don't know about you, but even in the moments where I feel most convicted, that is the news that is the sweetest and the most beautiful news there is. Let's pray.